From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Kate Cheney is one of the half-dozen so-called teal independents whose election last year spoke to the disillusionment of many voters in Liberal seats about contemporary politics. The teals ran on programs of climate change, integrity and equality for women. With the Labor government in majority, they don't have the balance of power, but they have made sure that their voices are heard on a range of issues. More than half a year on, the Teals have seen parliamentary politics from the inside. So how are they finding it and how are they faring? Kate Cheney from the Western Australian seat of Curtin joins us today to talk about her impressions. Kate Cheney, you've had time to settle into your parliamentary role. What's it like working as a crossbencher? Can you just give us a a brief overview of your time so far? I'm really enjoying it, Michelle. It's been a fascinating and steep learning curve over the last, well, eight months. I mean, as a crossbencher, you really have to think very carefully about how you vote on every piece of legislation and try as much as possible to connect with community and ensure that those votes are informed by community. Also, I think that opportunity to raise issues into the public conversation is is one that I take very seriously. And working out how to work with government, with opposition, with the rest of the crossbench, you know, there's been a lot to learn. During the campaign, we sort of talked about the Teals as a a collective, as it were, not a party, but nevertheless uh, put them together. Now, after a few months, they're starting to look more diverse, aren't they? They're starting to go off to the left, go off to the right on some issues, despite having common interests in other issues. Uh, I think that it's it's early days, really. And one of the things that I've found fascinating about it is that the things that we have in common don't really fit on a left-right divide. So we're largely not ideologically driven, more evidence-driven. We have in common values around optimism about the future of the country, compassion, ensuring that we are actually treating people fairly. And I don't think these things actually fit the left-right. So while we all bring our different experience to the parliament and have you know passions about different issues i'm not seeing a, a clear left right sort of a divide and i think that's the exciting thing about uh, this community independent movement is that there is something new that is not a simple ideological left right divide what about on things like tax though well i don't i mean i haven't seen any clear delineation on tax yet and perhaps it's early days and and, and that will emerge but I think we have a common interest in taking a long-term approach to things including tax reform. There are a number of issues that we're not addressing because they're politically unpalatable and we will need to look at where our tax revenue comes from to meet the demographic challenges of the next 20 years. And I think the crossbench is able to raise some of those longer-term issues and contribute to the conversation like that. Now, the Prime Minister, right from the start, reduced the crossbench staff compared to the last parliament, so you've got fewer. Now we see a staffer of Teal member Monique Ryan actually taking her boss to federal court over long hours and alleged unreasonable uh, work demands. How are you coping with the current staff level? It's definitely challenging trying to get across 
all of the legislation with only one personal staff member. And I do think that challenge is quite different with the work of a, a backbencher in a party. I have been very lucky to find people who are passionately engaged and have experience that has made them very you know, well-suited for the job while still bringing a freshness to it. So, you know, I can't say that it's not challenging, but um, I feel very happy with my staff and I think it's a pretty high-functioning and, and cooperative lot. It must be particularly hard, though, for a Western Australian member because you have a lot of travel and presumably uh, it's harder to move staff about easily. It definitely is challenging. And my parliamentary and policy advisor has three young kids and she is definitely experiencing those challenges of being a working mother. But with a background in DFAT, she has experience and and is managing to you know prioritise things. And I think that's the big challenge is you inevitably have to be prioritising regularly and saying which are the things that we really need to get done. Now, moving to some specific issues, you uh, supported the Change the Date of Australia Day movement uh, campaign last month. What are your constituents telling you in regard to that? I think there is a growing sense of inevitability that will change the date. It's probably not a priority this year because the voice is a higher priority, but certainly with my younger constituents, there's a strong sense that we want Australia Day to be a day that unites us, not that divides us. Well, what's your position on the voice? Will you be campaigning for a yes vote in that uh, referendum? I will be campaigning for a yes vote. Um, I've worked in Aboriginal Affairs at West Farmers when it was the largest private sector employer in the country and then also in the community services sector and also with Noel Pearson up in Cape York a long time ago. But from that I've really learned that listening and understanding has to be a precondition to finding solutions. And I've learned some of that the hard way by not doing it. So I think we need to address the urgent short-term issues like Alice Springs, but we can't ignore the need for a long-term fundamental change to the way we approach these issues, which needs to be based on listening. Now, First Nations people don't have all the answers either, but we're more likely to be able to find them if it's based on on listening to the people who are affected by policy. After the voice is achieved, if it's achieved, do you want to see an early move to try to get a treaty or series of treaties with Indigenous people? I think that will be largely up to the voice and I don't think it's something we should rush. I think even just getting the voice model right will take many years and a few goes at it. But by putting it in the constitution, we're committing to continue to try to get it right. Treaty, I think, is a next step, but these are long-term changes. They're not short-term goals. And, and I think that making sure that there is deep engagement and understanding is more important than meeting you know, arbitrary timelines. Just on your point that it would take a long time to get the voice going, why is that? Because we've had extensive consultation, we've got a very detailed report from Langton and Calmer, it's a a representative body, why would it take so long to set up? Well, and I didn't mean it would take a long time to set up. I said a long time to get right, and I think there's a difference there. We'll have to keep iterating that model 
And the reason for that is that First Nations people are not a homogenous group in Australia. There are different views, different communities will have different views about how their representatives are, are chosen and we need to commit to continuing to improve that. So we can get something up and running but I think it needs to be open to continual iteration by the parliament which is why we don't want to put all this detail down in stone now and tie ourselves into a model that we need to continue to improve. So do you envisage that such a model would not necessarily be a democratic or fully democratic model that, for example, communities might appoint representatives to the voice? And if that's so, is there a danger that some people in the community could in fact be marginalised in the process? In other words, that elder men could take over and the voices of the women could be not represented, even though it is going to be, I think, a, a model that has specific gender allocations. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing representative voice bodies emerging around the country. And one really important thing is that we actually are consistent with the principle of listening to Indigenous voices in terms of how that representation is developed as well as on the, the substance of the, the issues. So it would be good to see um, the national voice model building on and tying in with the regional voice models that are emerging. And all these issues will need to be worked through, you know, whether it is a pure democratic vote or whether there are, you know, different voices in the community that are expressed. That is really up to Indigenous people in the country to work through. Turning now to the economy, we've seen the Reserve Bank raise interest rates for the ninth time. What feedback are you getting from your electorate about the cost of living issue? Who are they blaming? Well, I mean, in my electorate is relatively well off, but even in my electorate in the 2021 census, there were 26% of renters were in housing stress and 13% of homeowners. It's probably higher than that now. Um, so it is definitely a very real issue. It is, I mean, obviously we have an independent reserve bank and have had for 25 years for a reason. And I do I do find it a bit bemusing that even though the Reserve Bank is saying that the fiscal policy is having a neutral impact on inflation, there is this expectation that government will somehow fix it, even though we've made a very deliberate decision as a country to separate the Reserve Bank from the government. I mean, I think that the Reserve Bank is doing its job. It's not a very popular, you know, they're not popular decisions, but that's the point. That's why we make it independent. So I also think it's probably a good time to be re reviewing the uh, the charter of the Reserve Bank, which has been the same since 1945, and, and look at, you know, what the purpose is and what the mix of skills is to ensure that we are developing monetary policy in a way that, that's consistent with, you know, our priorities as a country. Do you think Phil Lowe is being unfairly targeted? I do a bit, yeah. I, I think that for a start, it's not just him. He's part of a board and they make these decisions together and, and there's a reason it's not one person making this decision. No, but nevertheless, the staff headed by Phil Lowe really drive these decisions because other board members don't have that detailed day-to-day -day grasp of the matter, do they? 
Well, that's right. But the reason you have a board is to get a diversity of views on there and ensure that different perspectives are being taken into account. We want it to be an independent decision. So we can't, on the one hand, complain about it being an independent decision. And on the other hand, you know, we can't criticise it if we actually want it to be an independent decision. Um, So I think he's in a tough position. You think he's done a reasonable job, though? Well, our economy remains overheated and... I mean, maybe there are different ways to do that. The Reserve Bank really only has the tool of interest rates to do that. And maybe we do need to look at broader ways to to reduce that heat in the economy. But given the tools that he currently has and the, the data on where the economy is, it's pretty hard to say that, you know, that we shouldn't be putting interest rates up if we're aiming for an inflation rate of 2 to 3%. Now, you made the point that it's unreasonable to think governments can fix these things, but are people starting to say the government should fix it or is the government, in fact, not getting the heat on this? Certainly in question time every day, the government's getting a lot of of heat on it and you don't want your fiscal policy and your monetary policy pulling in different directions. I think so far, I mean, we still have a 2% GDP deficit in the budget, which will need to be addressed over the long term. But I was glad in the October budget that there was some restraint. There wasn't uh, you know, a whole lot of huge additional spending. And in COVID, I think we, you know, both fiscal policy and monetary policy were pushing pretty hard and maybe we overdid it. So I think it's good to see that restraint. There are some big spending items coming up and I have some concerns about how they might in fact affect inflation. I think the government's in a pretty tough position, not wanting to have an inflationary impact, but also trying to address cost of living. And some of the measures they've taken, such as energy price caps and childcare costs, rather than injecting money into the economy, they're reducing some of those costs, which I think is probably the right approach. Now, you've been recently really critical of the Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, for accepting political support from Sportsbet during the election. She declared everything. So can you elaborate on your criticisms? Yeah, when you say she declared everything, she declared everything in line with what is required, which meant that the $19,000 donation didn't need to be declared because it was a $10,000 cash donation below the $14,000 threshold and a $9,000 dinner, you know, which isn't a cash donation. I think we have real problems when we've got gambling companies supporting the people who are regulating them. And between Sportsbet and Tab Corp and Star combined, they donated $700,000 to the major parties in the last 12 months. Now, Michelle Rowland may feel a bit like it's not fair that I'm focusing on her because both parties are doing it. And that's that's the problem, is that this is normalised. And in the short term, transparency definitely helps. And I welcome the Prime Minister's commitment to lower the threshold to $1,000 and have real-time disclosure because I think people deserve to know who is funding their candidates before they vote, not eight months afterwards. Um, in the longer term, I think we need to decide whether we are happy to have companies that are inflicting social harm for profit buying influence in our political parties. And you can't give shareholder money away. You have to be able to justify it. And the only possible justification for it 
is that they're hoping to get, um, you know, a better policy position. And that's not going to change through the major parties. That will only change through community requiring that or, you know, demanding that we remove the ability of these companies to influence policy. So you think that donations from these gambling companies should be just banned? I think they should be, yeah. I think tobacco, now I know the National Party takes some tobacco donations, but the major parties have said that they won't. There's a precedent there for making a decision that it's not a good look to have companies inflicting social harm funding them. And I think we can carry that same principle into you know, gambling and, and potentially other areas too. What other areas would you target? Well, I would like to see a community discussion of that and people will draw the line in different spots, but tobacco, alcohol, gambling, one day it might be fossil fuels too. Well, talking about fossil fuels... Climate change was uh, one of your main focus uh, issues during the um, election campaign and there's now a big argument about the government's safeguards legislation with the Greens uh, imposing tough conditions at this point anyway for their support. They want uh, a commitment from the government of no new uh, coal or, or gas projects and the Liberals uh, simply saying no. What's the feedback coming from business to you about in particular the Liberal policy? As context for this, I was sustainability manager at West Farmers a decade ago and the regulatory environment around emissions has changed. You know, we've had lots of different versions At that time in that role, the thing we wanted more than anything else was certainty. We just wanted the rules to be put in place so that we could make investment decisions with some certainty about, um, you know, returns and and how that was going to work. So I, I think that sentiment is still very much shared by business. And the reality is the only policy that has certainty is something that will actually help us to pull our weight on decarbonising. Um, anything that doesn't do that is likely to change again in the future. Now, a carbon price is by far the most economically efficient and simple way to do this, but that's become politically impossible. So instead, we have this fairly convoluted and complex safeguard mechanism. The big issues I have with it are the treatment of new entrants and the quantity and quality of uh, offsets. New entrants, by 2030, they're expecting 10 million tonnes of emissions per year from new entrants. That means everybody else has to cut a bit more to make room for that. Um, So I think we could tighten up the the new entrant requirements. On offsets, there's no doubt we need a market for, for offsets. We need new industries that suck carbon out of the air and that's going to be part of our economy going forward. But we're not going to be able to offset our way to zero And we need to make sure that they are good quality offsets. So some limitations on the quantity and ensuring the ongoing integrity of the quality of those offsets will be important to make sure that this is a mechanism that provides certainty and will actually get us to where we need to go. So you're saying that there needs to be some amendment of the legislation? Yeah, I mean, there are numerous amendments that I think 
could be made. Yeah. The big ones, I think, are around the treatment of new entrants and quantity and quality of offsets. And there are various ways you can cut that, and I'll be talking to the government about that. But from a business perspective, certainty is what it's all about. And then from a community perspective, and, and, you know, no one really wants to get too deep into the detail of the safeguard mechanism because it's fairly technical but I think the community just wants to know that the industrial sector is pulling its weight. So you think that uh, on, on this issue, the Liberal Party is just completely out of whack with community opinion? I do, actually. I think just saying, no, we reject it, is not overly helpful. And, and I think what we're seeing is the crossbench are engaging on improving legislation rather than just jumping up and down and saying it's all terrible. You know, the safeguard mechanism has been developed by the Liberal Party. They've been involved in its development and just turning around and saying it's terrible just shows a dropping relevance, I think. When you talk to the government about legislation, do you feel that they're engaging to be polite, to give you a few token wins, or do you feel that they are seriously engaging? So I still don't really know is the honest answer. Um, It seems to be good faith engagement on a lot of issues. I would say on the IR legislation, probably less so. But on a lot of issues, I think that there is a genuine willingness to be open to amendments that are not inconsistent with, you know, broad intent. I don't think we've really worked out how to do that efficiently and effectively. And it's definitely difficult to do that with the staff allocation that we that we have. Do you mean you can't effectively um, put on pressure as a group or as a collective? No, even individually, I think, you know, working through potential amendments with government just takes a long time and the processes are not set up to do that open-minded, genuine engagement with third parties because it hasn't been the way things have worked in the past. But I think there has been a willingness from government to try and improve that and that's really good to see and I think the community wants to see that too and it really goes back to first principles. The parliament should be there to improve legislation. You know, that's that's not just go through the motions of turning up and voting and so I'm very, you know, happy to be working constructively with government to improve that. Sometimes it might be token and I think, you know, we've got to be realistic about that but broadly the vibe is good. But it depends also on who you are, doesn't it? Because David Pocock gets a lot more or or did before the uh, Senate uh, situation changed somewhat, gets a lot more than lower house crossbenchers. I think that's right. But I think the government understands that this shift in how the parliament looks may be a long-term shift and not a one-off. So they are, you know, engaging with us pretty constructively, probably more so than I would have expected, given, I suppose, what I'd heard about previous governments and their engagement with the crossbench. Just to finish off on the Liberal Party and uh, looking at it more broadly, you come from a very liberal family, you're Uncle Fred was a federal Liberal minister. What do you see as the future of the Liberal Party? Do you think it's dealing itself out of relevance or can it come back? Or are we just in a different part of the political cycle? Mm. I mean, I, I 
I didn't see myself represented in what I saw of the Liberal Party and I think it has increasingly come to represent a very small proportion of the population. And, and I have no, you know, I don't know anything about the inner workings of the Liberal Party and quite frankly I'm glad it's not my problem. But looking at what they published on their review of the 2022 election, I don't think it's showing any signs of really working out what it stands for and what its future vision for the country is. All of the review was focused on how do we win again. And I think it really shows that shift from policy to politics that people are sick of. So I think it's got a lot of work to do if it wants to come back and represent an alternative view of a positive future for the country. Especially, presumably, in Western Australia, where it's got hardly any seats at a state level and was decimated at a federal level. Yeah, I think they've got a lot of hard thinking to do, and I hope that that thinking is focused on what they stand for rather than how to win. Kate Cheney, thank you very much for talking with us today. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Thanks very much, Michelle. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.